Hello, everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Anya Morozov, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and outside the field of public health. Last week, we spoke with Dr. Ryan Smith about mosquito and a little bit of tick surveillance across the state of Iowa. Today, we are continuing that conversation by speaking with Dr. Christine Peterson, a professor in the Department of Epidemiology here at the University of Iowa. Her work focuses on the prevention of zoonotic diseases, including tick-borne diseases, which are the topic of today's episode. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. So to start off, can you talk a little bit about your career path? Uh, We asked a similar question to Ryan last week, but what got you to study, of all things, ticks? Yeah, well, um, you know, I was one of those kids who was like pulling feral cats out of bushes and catching frogs and snails and all those crazy things. And so my my path to becoming a veterinarian was pretty straightforward. But then when I was a vet student, I got a cool grant called Expanding Horizons that allowed me to spend the summer in Kenya. And it was there that I got to know a lot more about both the interface of animals with people and the diseases that they can share. And a lot of those are vector-borne because that's a quick way for a disease to jump from one population to another. Um, And then ticks in particular, uh, I've been studying a cohort of hunting dogs for other diseases they have, but in talking to to their people, uh, their owners or or caretakers, often it's tick-borne diseases that were causing a lot more trouble And in a lot of instances in places like Brazil, actually killing the dogs. And that, of course, is a major comorbidity as a epidemiologist. So we started looking at it just to be able to really know how much of what we were seeing was because of the disease of interest and how much of it was also associated with these tick-borne diseases. But as particularly Lyme disease is the number one vector-borne disease in the United States, we quickly started just looking at the tick-borne diseases themselves for our own interest. Yeah. So your work kind of spans globally then. Absolutely. So I guess just focusing specifically on Iowa, can you give us a brief introduction to the types of ticks and the diseases that they can transmit here in Iowa? Yeah. So probably the first one that people talk about across the country is the black-legged tick, or some people call it a deer tick. Um, which is scientifically known as Ixodes Ixodes scapularis. And that is the tick that's known to carry Lyme disease in the Midwest and the Northeast of the United States. And it also has a couple other diseases that can kind of hitch a ride as well. One is called anaplasma. There's two different species of anaplasma. One is phagocytophilum and the second one is platys. And those two names come from the different blood cells that it's going to get into. So phagocytophilum means it's going to go into those phagocytic cells and platys is platelets. And then the third disease that can also be carried in those black-legged ticks is Babesia, specifically for people, Babesia microti, and it's a single cell protozoal disease. Microti doesn't cause as much disease in animals, but there's other Babesia species that do. And actually, that was the topic of one of my recent uh, PhD students. So how do you monitor the different types of ticks and I guess the populations of ticks across the state or in your research 
and the rates of tick-borne diseases as well? So to look at ticks, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Kind of the traditional ways are dragging or flagging for ticks. And that's where you carry a white cloth. We like to use flannel because it's kind of more uh, sticky and the ticks can cling onto it better. And you literally walk through an area that you think you might find ticks and you stop in a regimented way every so often, usually a certain distance or a certain amount of paces or time. And then you look at that cloth very carefully because, of course, the nymphs and the larvae of these ticks are very tiny and you pick them off. And usually you do that with some nice forceps and you stick them into a tube because you might have some idea of what ticket is just from looking at it on that cloth. But sometimes you're getting, especially those particularly little ones, you need to look under a microscope to be 100% sure which it is. There's some other ways. So there's trapping methods that use sticky tape and carbon dioxide to pull in the ticks because they think it's a, a blood meal because carbon dioxide, of course, is what mammals breathe out. So they're drawn to that. And then they get caught on the sticky tape when they go crawling across. And then more recently, citizen science efforts using applications like on your smartphone have really grown in, in both use and popularity. So there's the Center of Excellence in Vector-Borne Diseases that's headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin at the University of um, Wisconsin. And they've developed a tick app where you can use it to identify the tick you found on, you know, a walk, on yourself, on your pet, and then enter in where you found it. <laughs> What's funny is they're actually looking for where in geography, um, but often people will also tell like where on their body, which of course gets really um, interesting sometimes and maybe a little R-rated, but um, then they use that database to map it over, you know, the expanse of the Midwest to then follow where we're seeing different species. And then in terms of the diseases, you can both test those ticks that are on drag. So they're called questing ticks. They're the ones looking for a blood meal. So they shouldn't have any pathogens in them from a recent blood meal. Instead, if they have detectable, you know, spirochetes like Borrelia in them, it means that that came basically through another life stage and they, they're persistently infected from larva on. If we want to use sentinel species, and that's one of the things my lab does, we use a large cohort of those hunting dogs. We spend a lot of time out in the habitat where these tick-borne diseases are found. And that means that they're at very high risk and they can kind of be used as cotton swabs running through the woods to pick up, you know, the ticks that are out there, but also the diseases that are out there. And that helps us understand what we as humans that are often going into those spaces with our dogs would also be at risk of acquiring. Can you actually talk a little bit more about your work with hunting dogs? Because I, I did a little bit of reading into it, but I didn't realize, like you mentioned, you're doing it in Brazil as well. I didn't know it was global. I thought it was just kind of like the Northeast United States. So can you talk a little bit more about that work? Yeah. So in Brazil, we're actually studying a, a different vector-borne disease primarily, one that's a protozoan disease called Leishmania infantum. And that's a disease that is zoonotic as well and vector-borne as well, but it's not carried by ticks. It's carried by uh, a little sandfly, but dogs are the reservoir for it and also kind of serve as that sentinel host. So it's a disease that kills between 20 and 40,000 people every year. 
And because of that, and because of the role that dogs play in kind of keeping those diseases in peri-domestic areas where people are at risk as well, especially kids, that's why it's called infantum, there's ways that we can use surveillance of and intervention with dogs to help prevent disease in, in those populations, then whether it's in kids or in immunocompromised populations, then that's what we see in Europe. So in Brazil, as I was saying, we were out in these neighborhoods talking about using insecticide impregnated collars or other vector treatment to help prevent these diseases. But one of the, you know, kind of great impacts that we were having at the same time was preventing tick-borne disease. And a lot of the dog owners were really worried about tick disease, tick fever, they called it. And that specifically was Ehrlichia canis. And it causes a really profound anemia and the dogs can die of that anemia. So having learned that and knowing that about 80% of the dogs in the area that we were working in Northeast Brazil called Natal, Brazil, we then did a longitudinal study after doing that cross-sectional study in Brazil, we did the longitudinal study here in the United States and found that there really was a profound effect of these tick-borne diseases increasing their progression with the underlying leishmaniasis or leishmania uh, infection. And that by preventing the tick disease, we can actually prevent the protozoal disease, which is much harder to treat. And I guess as someone who like I was once pre-medicine and then I kind of meandered my way to public health. So I often find myself focusing only on how things like ticks or mosquitoes impact humans, but a lot of your work also centers around animals. So why do you think it's important to focus on humans and animals and the environment when studying something like vector-borne disease? Well, you know, you're obviously not alone in that focus. And that's the way a lot of medicine has gone, particularly after the epidemiologic shift that happened in the 60s when, you know, people were declaring infectious diseases basically eradicated and we didn't need to think about them anymore. So then we really were just trying to treat people with the stuff that they came in with. But especially when you talk about vector-borne diseases, you know, vectors don't really care. They care a little bit, but not too much what they get their blood meal from. So they're likely to take blood meals from multiple different species. And especially if they, you know, feed on one thing and then feed on another thing, that's a great way to be able to transmit disease. The ability of a vector to live in a particular area is really based on things like temperature, humidity, wind speed, what your winters are like, you know, so that helps dictate whether there's seasonality or not. And all of that put together really is what sets up a particular area for being very rich and rife with these different vector-borne diseases or that they have different patterns. So if you know that the disease is also infecting another animal, usually another mammal, but you know certainly the vectors are animals too, both the arachnids and the insects, those are different parts of the life cycle that also can be a great way to do interventions. So you can have different abatement methods to get rid of where they breed. You can use different insecticides to protect those domestic animals that I was just talking about, those sentinels that can also be reservoirs. And that can make a huge difference in the human exposure in a lot of these places. So for instance, one of my collaborators, who is a really smart and sharp woman, also a veterinarian that trained in Portugal, 
she came up with the idea that we could use the reservoir for Lyme disease, which is the white-footed mouse, as kind of a little antibody factory. So if we feed them pellets that are coated with an outer surface protein of Borrelia, they'll make antibodies against it. Then when the tick feeds on them, which they do a lot, they will take up those antibodies from the mouse and it will get the Borrelia out of the ticks. So basically you can eliminate the disease from the landscape without having to try to convince people to get vaccinated or to wear potentially toxic insecticides. So it's a way that we can make a big difference in exposure to the infectious disease without having, you know, kind of untoward other toxic exposures through some of these other things. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I think it's kind of getting at like a lot of the the public health work, I feel like goes behind the scenes and people, I, I mean, I think there's more of a push now to make public health more visible, but in the past people have said like, when public health is doing its job, you don't even know it's there. <laughs> and that's a great example of how that happens. I guess, do you know anything about how rates of tick-borne diseases have changed over the years or maybe like the range of different tick species? And what do you think influences these rates from year to year? Well, we know that pretty much across the board, all tick-borne diseases are increasing significantly in the United States, whether it's Lyme disease, anaplasma, ehrlichia, babesia, all the ones that I was just talking to about, all of them are on the rise. Some of that's for good reasons, you know, that Americans are trying to get out and be healthy and get those steps in, but, you know, they're taking those steps in places where there's ticks and increasing exposure. But some of it's because of the things we are doing to our environments. So, we're, we've really changed the environment and we've made it so that we don't have a lot of predator species, which have led to large overpopulations of creatures like white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer aren't, you know, so people think that white-tailed deer are the reservoir for Lyme disease. And that's not exactly right. They really are only fed on by those adult ticks. So they're not kind of letting the whole life cycle happen on them or in them. And that's the role of the mouse and other rodents. But what they do is they move ticks across landscapes. So for instance, there was not a lot of Lyme disease in Iowa, but it's really growing in the Northeast. And we really think that's happening because the Northeast is a beautiful area that's got like the whole driftless landscape and lots of cool state parks. But that means it's a great place for deer to swim across the river and go hang out. And then, you know, those deer move into our agricultural areas where they do quite well because, you know, there's corn and other things to eat off the ground. And that's how it's slowly moving from uh, kind of northeast to, to south across the country. It's also true that there's a different tick species, um, the lone star tick or Amblyoma americanum, that's particularly in Arkansas and Missouri, and that's slowly creeping its way northward. So we're kind of the, the magic middle ground where we're going to have all the fun ticks that are vectoring various diseases in Iowa. <laughs> That's interesting. When we spoke to Dr. Smith last week, he also said that we're kind of at this intersection or like edge of the range of certain mosquito species as well. So it's a fun place to be in Iowa, I guess. Exactly. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Um, for the, for the Lone Star tick, do you know if the shift in range is also due to those, the white-tailed deer traveling or is that something else? 
Yeah, they're, I mean, they can be found on deer, but they aren't as kind of prone to deer. They cause a disease called tularemia, which is also known as rabbit fever. So they really like rabbits. They like other rodents, but they're a pretty aggressive species and they'll pretty much feed on whatever they can, which means that they tend to get rides on what's abundant and around, which is a lot of rodents. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I guess kind of talking about I know I've done some summer hiking myself and want to stay safe from ticks, not a fan of them. Um, So what can individuals and communities do to reduce their own risk or even their pets' risk of getting tick-borne diseases? Well, so the pets are almost easier at this point because there are multiple pretty useful tick products out there. There's a newer class of them called isoxazonids, which of course does not roll off everybody's tongue, (laughs) but they're there's three or four of them and your veterinarian will know what they are and they work really well. So I highly suggest if you have a furry friend that you like to take out into those areas, please get them on good tick control and preferably year round because ticks come out anytime you get a day above 50 degrees and, you know, pretty much every month, except for maybe February usually has at least a day or two where that happens these days. In terms of, for us, you know, the one option is just don't go into tick habitat, but I, like you, like to go hiking and go out into the woods and do fun things. So then your options are use good insecticide like DEET or certain citronella compounds can work and particularly use them kind of down on your socks because ticks start from the ground. I've heard these myths that like ticks fall from the sky, like from trees or something, And it's because people find them in their hair. So they assume they came that way, but no, they've crawled up your whole body and that's where they've decided to get the blood meal. Not to freak people out, but that's what's happening. So so that's where really dorky, but useful things can be tucking your socks into your pants or at least wear pants versus shorts if you can convince yourselves to do it. The other thing that's useful is to try to use lighter colors because you know, as those ticks, which tend to be darker colors, are crawling up your body, when you come out of the woods and you are hiking with a friend, that friend can do a quick tick check of you and see if they see a tick on you, and then vice versa. And it's much easier to see if you're not wearing black, brown, or gray. Wow, that is not something that I would have thought of, but that's a good tip. <laughs> For my next question, I know we've kind of only scratch the surface of the work you do. When I hear about your work around the college, it seems like you're everywhere all the time. So this can be specifically focused on your work around ticks or more broadly, but you know, the the 10 essential services of public health center health equity. So I'm curious to know, like, what role does health equity play in your work? Yeah, well, we haven't used it as an official outcome or metric, but of course it has a huge role. And you know, some of the things are simple. So when we talk about neglected tropical diseases, the people who get them are the people who are poorly nourished, usually have other severe comorbidities. For instance, the work I do in India on that protozoal disease, leishmaniasis, are often Muslim communities, which, you know, unfortunately in the news we were hearing about, again, Muslim Hindu strife in India. And, you know, in Brazil, it's kind of neighborhoods on the outside of the city, favela-like places where we see the most exposure to leishmaniasis. And then when we talk about health disparities and you know health equity in the United States, 
it's a little interesting with tick-borne diseases because both rich people and those without as much money like to go outside and do fun things. It's kind of why they're outside that's very different. So there's been outbreaks of various problems in landscapers or people doing yard work. And so the exposures might not be that different, but what's really different is then access to care, ability to get a good diagnosis, because, you know, if you're going to an emergency room and paying out of pocket, one, you're probably likely to wait a long time. And with Lyme disease, that makes a huge difference. If you get on antibiotics sooner, you're going to have much better outcomes than if you kind of get this rash, but you're like, okay, well, it doesn't hurt. I'm fine. And then you move on to the other problems like Lyme arthritis or carditis or neuropathies. And that of course has much greater impact on your health, on your ability to work and makes a huger, a huger, yeah, good word, makes a bigger difference in, in outcomes. So it's, it's pretty straightforward to know that there's not equity when it comes to those diseases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think like even in the United States, just making sure there are protections in place for people who have to work around ticks to get them care quickly is, would be a good, yeah, bigger step. Fantastic. And, and, you know, because for these diseases, we don't have great preventative measures. I mean, yeah, you know, tucking in your socks and wearing like colors. And usually that's things that most landscapers are already doing, but you still have to do the tick checks. And, you know, when you're working two different jobs and you have to run between them with a quick shower, you know, you may not do the good tick check and you miss it. So now we'll move on to the last question that we ask to everyone who comes on the podcast. What is one thing you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? Yeah, well, I've definitely been wrong about a bunch of things over the years. I think like a lot of people, I didn't really understand the role of deer in Lyme disease. And it took me kind of talking to different mammologists actually to to understand more the role of the rodents versus the deer and how, you know, they both have a role, but they are certainly different and how interventions in deer can be useful to stop expansion, but not so much decrease incidence in a particular area. So that was something I had to you know, I had to learn. And I think it's because of, you know, the misnomer of the tick being the deer tick. I was like, well, you know, we can just get rid of the deer tick and get them off a of deer and then we're fine. Yeah, I, I, I can give you multiple examples. If you want. That's one. Yeah, I think most of us, myself included, have more things we thought we knew, but were later wrong about than things we turned out to be right about sometimes. Okay, well, this has been a great conversation. It's been great to learn about your work. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. It's been a real pleasure to talk about it. And yeah, just remind everybody to do tick checks and get your pets on preventive. That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Christine Peterson for joining us today. This episode was hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Anya Morozov. And you can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. As always, our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Do you have a suggestion for our team? a comment about the show, or a question that you'd like answered, 
You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.